This morning we are in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So let us hear God's word for us this morning. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Please pray with me. Lord God, we come to you this morning praying that you would help us, enable us, and empower us as only you can to pay closer attention to your word that's reliable, that's trustworthy, that's true and better, that points to Christ and a more glorious gospel that's all we need every single day. So open our hearts to hear your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you might remember, Robert, Stephen, and I are all going to work through Hebrews together, so the benefit, hopefully, for y'all is that you get a more contuous, contuous, that word, continual focus in God's word. So we don't have tangents every single week. And also, we're trying to add part of that to bring a little bit of a preview, whether it's by video or by text, to get you uh, prepared, maybe a little more in advance than, what, like 16 seconds ago, that this is the passage we're going to be looking at. So we sent out a video, you'll see it on our YouTube channel, a lot of other places, kind of giving you the passage. We're going to try to aim for either an a idea, a theme, or the question that helps us to get into that. The hope is, as we see in this warning, that we can get closer to God's Word, that His Word can start preparing our hearts even before we come to it, so that it can saturate our thinking our loving, our desiring, and our lives. This passage this morning is a sermon in a letter. The whole book of Hebrews is this pastor's letter to this congregation encouraging, or or the fancier word, exhorting them, driving them to not just understand more of the gospel, but to thrive in the gospel in the context of a really challenging set of circumstances. This morning, in other words, the the question before us is, what do we do again with warnings? How do we see them in the gospel context? What do we do with this substantial warning? And specifically, how it frames for us how much greater the gospel is. So how much more opportunity do we have to enjoy? This letter in other words, is to put Christ on display, not just on a pedestal in some corner of our house, but in all of our lives, in every aspect of where we live and breathe and have our moving, and in every place as he's fulfilled all the law and the prophets and now has come to us in his word as a better prophet, the final priest and the eternal king. So this warning is the first of five warnings that we're going to get throughout the book of Hebrews. There's going to be one here in chapter 2, another one that goes from chapter 3 into chapter 4, one in chapter 5 to 6, and then chapter 10, 
and chapter 12. In other words, please don't miss these warnings. They're going to come often. They're going to be the big neon signs hanging along our lives to say, watch out. But these warnings, we don't want to miss the fact that there's a difference in warning, for example, between the back of a 9-volt battery that says, warning, electric shock can occur, and the difference between a 220-volt outlet that will really put some juice through your bones. Kids, don't try that. Don't even take the 9-volt and like stick it on your tongue. Right? Don't do that. Okay, it won't do that sound, but... There's a warning, but there's a difference in warnings. They're not all the same. And what the good news of this warning is this morning is because there was a warning from the Old Testament, how much more should we heed the warning of the new? How much better and how much more closely should we pay attention to the goodness that's in the gospel? So I'm aiming to get four points. Really, it's balancing out. Stephen had two last week. For this week, you do the math. We're aiming for an average of three. That's a dorky Presbyterian joke. We'll move on. So first, I want to see how much closer attention we should pay. Secondly, how much more reliable this message is. Thirdly, that we shouldn't neglect such a great and glorious salvation. And all of this is anchored because it's the Lord himself who is declaring it. And he's testified to it. He's bore witness to it. And it's true and better. So let's jump in. We need to pay much closer attention. And right off the bat, we see in chapter 2, verse 1, this therefore. Anytime you're reading a book, especially the scripture, you need to ask, why is therefore therefore? What is therefore therefore? What is this supposed to do to us? What is it pointing us back to? It's directly building on where Stephen came last week with the message of angels. It's, it was good and it was true, but it was pointing ahead to something. It was pointing to something final and fulfilling, and that's exactly where the book of Hebrews, this pastor, starts us in the very beginning that long ago, many times God has spoken to us, but in these last and final days, he's spoken to us by his very son, the word made flesh, incarnate, to give us this final word. And this is who Christ is. He's far and away better. He's the very radiance of the glory of God here in our midst. So this conclusion in verse 14, are they, are not these ministering spirits, are not these angels sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That is true. Therefore, we really need to pay closer attention. That's where we get to in verse 1 of chapter 2. This also happens to be the first command in the book of Hebrews. Interesting, he doesn't start off with commands. It's not a list of do this. Do this better. Try harder. That's not the gospel. It's who is Christ. Look to your Savior. He is good and glorious, far and away better than anything you can ask, him, ask and imagine. Here's how he's anchored his message throughout Old Testament history. Now pay attention. 
And this command comes with this weight because it's significant. What happens if we don't pay more, closer attention? The warning is, lest we drift away from it. Both this phrase in, in Greek, the pay attention idea, and the negative, unless, like lest we drift away, both of those are couched in a nautical term. They're using ocean ideas to push us towards why this is so significant. The pay attention idea is if you've ever been, well, the lake will work, but if you've ever been at, uh, out in the ocean, you know there's no neutral. You don't just sit. You're either drifting because there's an ocean current, a waves, or there's wind, or you're moving somewhere. And the lest you drift away reminds us, unless we have a firm and steady anchor, we're going to be constantly afloat. There's things pushing us. Don't we know it? And the problem of drifting is that it's not a morally neutral position. Oh, you know, I'm just kind of floating over here. That's a spiritually significant problem. Because, as the writer here is getting at, sin has corrupted the cultural waters in which our sin-bent hearts are trying to swim. The problem is that there's sin out there that we're floating in, and there's sin in here that's corrupting how we're thinking and believing and behaving out there. So just by logical inverse, the opportunity here is to hear this warning and to say, how much more do I need to be anchored? What does it look like for me to be anchored in God's word? And he's going out of his way to give us these connections, not just what to think about, but how to think about it. He's given us seven Old Testament references, and he's only a chapter in. He's going to be on his way to to hit over 40 by the time he's done with 13 chapters of Hebrews. And it's not just in reference, specific quotes. He's going to be alluding to characters and drawing on themes all over the place to give us this rich picture of what we should pay more close attention to. In other words, if I were to sketch out for you a really nice crayon drawing, and for those of you that know I'm military, it's the Marine in me, it comes out with crayons. Okay, when I'm done chewing on them, I like to sketch out some things. But if I were to give you a sketch drawing, there's not a lot of detail there for you to catch. You'd glance at it, okay, it's a dude with a stick. Move on. But that's not what the Scripture is giving us here of this incredibly detailed, rich picture, like a tapestry with threads woven all throughout Old Testament. If you don't like drawings, if I were to come to the piano, which I won't do not only because it's out of the camera angle, but because it will be a huge distraction and tangent, but if I were to plunk out Mary Had a Little Lamb, there's not a lot of musicality and dynamics in Christian. There's not a lot going on for you to pay attention to. Daniel, on the other hand, much more of a rich sound for you to notice. So how much more do we need to pay attention to the richness of God's word? 
because there's details there to notice. The radiance of the glory of God. If I can put this warning as close to what I think the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. If you've ever been hiking in the mountains and there's those parts of the trail that are kind of like this, only with a much steeper drop-off that you, you see is potentially hazardous, could be hazardous to your health, and you see a warning side there at the beginning of the trail. Warning, this is a rigorous climb with steep drop-offs and potential rock slides. You're not thinking, well, okay, maybe that's not worth going on. Because you can see the top of the mountain. You can imagine how incredibly clear and beautiful the vistas are from up there. You pay attention to the warning and you hike through the trail carefully. That's what Hebrews is getting at. Pay attention to these warnings. Start to buckle up your shoes a little tighter so that you can hike and navigate these potentially treacherous terrains carefully, but it's worth it. And pay attention to what you've heard. This is a really significant word here at the end of chapter 2. Because you've heard the teachings of the Lord. This echoes back all the way to the garden. The very first things that God revealed was by his very words. He gave the good commands to Adam and Eve. And he spoke to the patriarchs time and time again. He even revealed his own commands, his law, through Moses all the way to the teaching of his own son who multiple times starts off his teachings, his sermons, his parables with, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he doesn't erase any of those commands. He fulfills them and bumps the notch up a few important degrees. This reminds us here today, as we hear God's word, just what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. There's significance to hearing because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I hope this is oversimplistic for the point of a, making my, my point here that Hebrews is making. We must hear, but hearing by itself doesn't stick any of those ideas in our brains. We have to be active listening. We have to think and pray that the Holy Spirit would actually make that have some effect. Here's the point. To pay much closer attention lest we drift away from what we have heard, it means that there's significant work, mental and heart-level work that each one of us need to do when we approach God's Word. That's not an empty exercise. It's not a list of to-dos. It's good work. A lot of commentators actually suggest that this should be the closest attention. Pay the closest attention, as if you have lots of things in your day to pay attention to. Right? We, we get that. But of all the things you're focusing on, pay the closest attention to what God has said, what you have heard in his word. 
So the question for us this morning is, have we heard? Are you listening? Some of us here this morning might have heard stuff about the Bible, different details about God all through your life, maybe even this morning already. Have you actually heard? And then have you paid attention, paid most close attention to the call of Christ in your life? And what are you doing with that? Are you anchoring all of your life on the trustworthy word of God? Or are you drifting, floating aimlessly, spiritually speaking? One commentator puts it this way, uh, Richard Phillips. He says, do you realize that if you do not pay attention to your spiritual condition, it will deteriorate on its own? Do you realize, given the corrupt nature of this world and of your own heart, that you naturally become dull and then deaden spiritually, steadily believing the lies of this age? Without giving heed to the spiritual resources God provides, your heart will revert to greed, pride, sensuality. And he goes on with a much longer list. All those characteristics that define our moral state in sin and lead to destruction. Those are all aspects of this warning to pay closer attention. Why, though, can we have such a heavy, substantial warning? Because Hebrews doesn't end there. He gives us a really significant reason, and he's going to build a really strong logical case why we can actually be required, commanded to pay close attention. He says... For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and he's referring there to the message declared by angels to repeatedly in the Old Testament, when uh, the angels, the, the messengers show up to Abraham, for example, or when uh, Moses is in front of the burning bush, it's, it's said there's an angel spoke to him, and the Lord's voice was in the burning bush. And then even in relaying the law, on Mount Sinai to Moses, uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 says it was angels of the Lord declaring these truths to him. So we get that this is, there's a mediator, there's a middleman speaking God's truths to us. But since that message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, it wasn't something made up. It was a witness, a testimony proven true, confirmed those then are details we can't ignore. So don't neglect this. And he goes for a second to the fact that of the Old Testament commands, of the law of Moses, there was a transgression or a disobedience that always received a just retribution. It's just a fancy name for an equal payment We've heard of this, the eye for an eye, the life for a life. For blood that's shed, blood will be shed. We get that, and he's saying, if this was true for the Old Testament, for when angels delivered this message through Moses, if there was a just retribution that came, how much more for such a great salvation? That's where he's going. 
And this great salvation doesn't get echoed across loudspeakers. It gets revealed to us by Jesus himself through his own life, through his very ministry, his death and resurrection, so that the message and the messenger are what are speaking to us today. And this message of good news, the salvation through Christ, that his work is ours. His death becomes counted for mine. And then his new life is the power and motivation that I get to live on a daily basis. He is the proclamation and the confirmation. It's reliable. It's been confirmed of a better message So with this logic of comparison, if it's a better message, I should pay better attention. It's that worth it. This is also the idea that Jesus himself uses, and we're going to see this woven throughout much of the rest of Hebrews. The the author here is taking the same idea that Jesus used, the same logical comparison, the how much more argument, when he talks about the parable of the wicked tenants in Luke chapter 20, verse 9 to 18. Do you you remember the story? We're going to go look it up for time, but it's the how much more. If, If the wicked tenants treat the servants who are saying, okay, get the owner of the vineyard, wants some of his fruit, a really good thing for an owner to want, like I want fruit, it's my vineyard, I planted it, I tended to it, I want some of the fruit of it. If the tenants treat the messengers, the servants poorly, and the owner's like, I know, they'll listen to my son. And what do they do to the son? They torture and kill him. And the how much more argument, if this is how they treated the very son of the master, how much more will they treat you? How much more should you pay attention Because God's word is proven effective, because it's reliable, in other words, it's tested, it's confirmed. We have thousands of years, not just of statistical data points, but of real lives lived and changed. How much more should we pay attention? One commentator puts it this way, that God's word is amply confirmed, abundantly reliable, and it's confirmed by evidence of word and deed. It doesn't just have God's stamp of approval, okay, move on with life. It's reliable. And Hebrews here is urging us to keep listening to Christ. Keep paying closer attention, again, or else we'll drift. At this point, I have to make this really important distinction. Because some of us hear this and we say, okay, but I'm good because I've checked the box on believing in Jesus. Please hear, the author of Hebrews is not talking to non-believers who need to be saved. He's talking to a group of believers. He's talking to a church, a specific body of believers who need to be encouraged to grow In other words, as good as the message of forgiveness of sins is, that's only, dare I say only, 
only an aspect of the gospel. The gospel is always more beautiful, rich, freeing, and empowering living in the Spirit to see more of His grace, more of the glory of Christ, and to see that expanded in more and more people's lives. That is something that I always need to pay more attention to. I always can grow in. And here's the greatest news for the rest of eternity. We'll get to continue to grow in that. We won't hit a point, well, I figured out all the facts of the gospel. There's always more. And we get to start that right now. So what are we listening to? What are we paying closer attention to? What do we consider reliable enough to tune into, to let shape us? Here's the third point. Because, he says, we can't, we won't, we shall not escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Most warnings that are going to come in the Bible, especially the, the continuing warnings, the next four that come, they, they have the idea that there is an or else built into them. And we all get this. We get this sometimes. It's from our parents. Uh, maybe even if you want to continue with the don't stick the nine volt on your tongue, kids, or else it will hurt. Right? We get that there's a, a negative side of that warning. Don't do stupid things or else pain will happen. Right? We, we get that there's that side of the warning. Sometimes we expect that to be the, the, the logical framework that we're using for these warnings. What, what kind of bad stuff will happen if I don't pay attention to this? Like, is my life going to ruin, be ruined? Like, but look where he goes with this. Follow the logical track. Logically speaking, he's saying, if the message declared by angels proved reliable, and it was, it was true, it was confirmed, it actually happened, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, the implied rhetorical question behind the next step is, how will we escape? How shall we escape what? An even worse punishment? That would be the logical trajectory that he's going with this argument. You follow that? If the angels proved it, it was reliable, and they got the punishment for not following it, and the message here is clear, then what's the logical conclusion? That we'll get an even worse punishment, right? That's not what he's arguing, though. What does he say? How shall we escape if we neglect and we'll get a worse punishment? No, he says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's arguing on comparison, that there's something better you might miss if you neglect to see how good it really is. Please hear that as a warning that is an encouragement to press on when it's hard, not an excuse to give up when it seems challenging. Don't neglect putting the work in because salvation is that rich and good. Not just, not just, dare I say just, not just the moment we received Christ and became saved, but the whole rest of the life of sanctification. 
Every single moment of dying to self and living to Christ is that great salvation that we should not neglect and is that worth it? How much better is living under the free gospel that we should not neglect enjoying the grace that motivates, that encourages, that forgives and brings reconciliation? How much more should we not neglect that than the burdensome law? Of course. Here, Jesus is using the same word in Matthew chapter 25, another parable. The same word, neglect, don't miss. It's the idea that they paid no attention to to completely be blinded to what's right in front of your face. He's talking about the parable of the wedding feast. You remember this, but you can go look at this up. Matthew 22, verse 5, later. Jesus gives this parable as a teaching tool, again, to say, a master prepared a feast something to enjoy and to share. And he sends out invitations. And what are those that neglect? They pay no attention. I got no time for that. I don't need a feast. They're completely missing it. But again, here the point is, Hebrews author is saying, there is a better, greater, richer, fuller, truer, more reliable message in salvation So don't neglect it. You will never be let down. Never have a moment of regret for paying more attention to the goodness of the gospel. But here we have to think what this is getting at is as a deeper level of my own priorities. How do I decide? Because we can't always pay attention to everything. We can't walk around life stuck with this in front of our face, how do I decide what is true and better? Because there's many messages that are true. There's many aspects of a lot of things going on in the world that are true but not better. And there are many things about life that seem better in the moment, seem more promising, more fulfilling. High school grads, you're going to be challenged daily when you step foot in college. There's more things you could spend your time on, more pathways to enjoy your free time, more things that your brain could be consumed with. It might seem better, but it's not true. The gospel here is saying it's true and it's always better. So don't neglect how great the salvation is. Don't pour your time, don't pour your energies, don't spend your life on something that is not confirmed, that is not reliable, that is not true, and is not better. Pay attention to what is great. There's a lot of practical ways that we could do this. I hope you find the value in what you've already proven by your simply attending this morning that you're saying yes to something better because there's a zillion things that you could be doing later on. But what are you going to do this afternoon? How are you going to show 
your own heart, those around you, that you're not neglecting the good news of this salvation in what you prioritize, how you order your schedule, your day, your calendar, your, your priorities, maybe time to turn off notifications, time to not pay attention to every single thing that's on the screen. That might be a helpful, practical way to focus in, to not neglect what is rich and true in salvation. Please hear, the gospel is showing us that Christ did not just come to save us from sin, judgment, and hell. That is true, but that's not all. He is saving us from sin to be free, to actually enjoy him, to live for his glory in light of the better, truer, more glorious gospel of his great salvation. In other words, this warning is saying, don't miss that you have opportunities to enjoy God and glorify him forever. One Puritan back in the 1600s said this, that God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. That's exactly the context that he's saying here. Don't neglect. And our minds might go, because there's a horrible punishment. But he's not saying that. He's saying, don't neglect that God wants you happy. He wants you richer and fuller in joy. He wants you to fall in love with his gospel through his son, empowered by his Holy Spirit. To move on, lastly, how do we know that this gospel is so great, is actually true, can be relied on, is trustworthy, and is better than everything else. He moves on to say in the second half of verse 3 that it was actually declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. God said it. Jesus declared it. The apostles passed it along, were willing to live and die for the goodness of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit now has established it by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit. What's amazing here is usually in the Old Testament, and the author of Hebrews knows his Old Testament really well, usually the way that God's truth, his prophetic word, is attested to or is witnessed is usually just by signs and wonders. Just those two. As if that's enough, right? A testimony is proven by one other witness, and God gives signs and wonders. He's given two. You know, he doubles it. But here, the author of Hebrews says, and, because signs and wonders, that could be a little bit weird. He's saying, and, there's even various miracles, things unprovable, the way we usually look at reality. And, in case that isn't convincing and provable and reliable, and various gifts, sorry, various miracles, and gifts by the Holy Spirit. He's showing us this rich truth that the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all coming to bear on his gospel to prove its reliability, its trustworthiness, 
its motivation. All of that, the triune God is bringing his gospel to bear on our hearts and lives. Calvin puts it this way. He says there are sign, they're called signs because they rouse men's mind. They make us think of something higher than what it appears. A sign is that which signifies, points to something better. And wonders, because they present what is rare and unusual, can't explain that any other way. And miracles, because the Lord shows in them a singular and an extraordinary evidence of his power and his power alone. All this was done, the author of Hebrews wraps this section up, according to his will. It's according to his will that the word of the gospel would come to us in the life of Jesus himself in his very own death and his new life would be what means everything for me. My prayer for y'all is that this truth would sink so far down that the warning is actually a motivation. I think this is exactly what Paul's getting at when he's mentioning this in in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, when he says this, this incredibly deep and profound thing that just hits me every time. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's the lesser to greater comparison. If you think it's awe-inspiring, if you think it's incredible that a heavenly father would give his own son to live and die for you, you haven't even seen half of it. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, please let that hit your heart. Please do not walk out of here this morning and neglect that God gave his only son for you to be turned from sin, to enjoy him forever. He wants better things for you, richer, truer, fuller, more grand and glorious. Whether you're stepping into college whether you're wrestling with your marriage, whether you're challenged by parenting, whether you're in retirement and wondering, there's richer, fuller, more glorious things because he did not spare his own son. You can rest assured, really rest, that God will also with him graciously, abundantly, give you all things. Please pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bring these warnings close to our hearts, that you would encourage us by your word, that you would remind us as you've declared what is true, what is better, what is more reliable, what is confirmed by your spirit, that that would confirm in us the good the better things you have in store for us so that we can live for you by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.